Dr. We All Gonna Die, interesting name. I want to thank you for joining us for the second part of NASA's Failure Modes, Effects, and Criticality Analysis portion of the Conceptual Design Review for your Mars Sample Return Mission. Oh, you're very welcome, Dr. Political Hack. So when Dr. Rogers of Emory asked about how you're going to retrieve the sample if it comes in off nominally, you said... Oh, we'll just have the janitor catch it like a Nolan Ryan heater. Yeah. Uh, our concern is that you misspelled the famed Texas Rangers pitcher's first name. It's spelled N-O-L-A-N. Noted. Then, when Dr. Grimm of Stanford asked what you would do if the retrieval team couldn't intercept the sample, you said... It'll just float off into space. Yeah, Doctor, we all going to die. Uh, it doesn't actually work like that. When you're in low Earth orbit, you're almost re-entering the atmosphere already. It's so low that the ISS, ISS has to be nudged back up into a slightly higher orbit on a regular basis. And if it takes 10 kilometers per second to get to orbit, requiring a gigantic spaceship, it takes another four or five kilometers per second to get out of Earth's orbit. So if you nudge something at the International Space Station at anything less than kilometers per hour, it just goes to a slightly higher apogee orbit that returns back to the same bottom of its orbit roughly 90 minutes later. Anything you bring down to low Earth orbit is basically going to re-enter the atmosphere sooner or later. Oh, well, good to know. Uh, I guess I guess it'll just burn up. Yeah, yeah, you've said that elsewhere, but it's not necessarily true. Uh, delicate things burn up when they come in at Mach 30, but big things tend to reach the surface of the Earth. Skylab, a much smaller space station than ISS, was more or less intact until about 50,000 feet over the surface of Australia. Yeah, you don't say. I do say uh, moving on, where Dr. Roy of MIT asked you about containment policies at the station, your response was... We're going to use silicone gloves. Hmm. Alien life could be made of radically different chemistry, leading to vastly different permeation and breakthrough rates in the gloves. One size does not fit all, Dr. We All Gonna Die. And then, when asked about a Sharps policy, you said... Oh, I love Sean Bean and the Sharps movies. Uh, awesome callback with the Shards of Narsil and the Fellowship of the Ring, by the way. Yeah, that's not what we meant by a Sharps policy. And then for a backup, you proposed... Just a bunch of Keystone cops who, if it looks like there's been a catastrophic breach or a containment failure, just dock with the station and, and sort of open the hatch. See what happens. Huh. Doctor, we all going to die. We here at NASA all think this proposal is poorly conceived and architected. Worse, it plays fast and loose with poten potential pathogens that could do untold damage to the Earth's ecosystem. We're appalled, frankly, that this proposal even made it to this level of review. We're ready to kick you out of here and put up do not help this man signs at the Huntsville airport. Give us one reason why we should literally throw you out. I have uh, here a letter from uh, Senator Fatcheck, chair of the Senate Subcommittee on Space and Science, committing $1 billion in federal aid to create 5,000 high-paying jobs in the greater Elmira and Corning metropolitan area on New York State's struggling southern tier. Well, why didn't you say so, Dr. We All Gonna Die? This FAMICA and Coat CODR have been fully approved and closed. You can start your work on Monday. And scene.
Tim. Well, hi, Tola. Well, we have an exciting episode today. Uh, we had the uh, real honor of getting some time with uh, a friend of both of ours for the better part of 20 years. Uh, Jeff Ashby was a naval aviator and uh, astronaut and spent time on the International Space Station where the story of our movie takes place today. The very realistic depiction of the International Space Station, as as I'm sure you will hear uh, in our in our discussion with him. I'm excited to hear what Jeff thinks. So we will go ahead and uh, play the entirety of that interview and come back and rejoin the audience afterwards. And we want to welcome our special guest, Captain Jeff Ashby. Uh, welcome, Jeff, to the podcast. Hi, Tola. Thank you. It's great to be back with you again. So uh, Jeff started uh, his career with the Navy. He was uh, he went to Top Gun and flew, I think, F-14s and before you started into F-18s, right? Uh, just the F-18. Ah, straight into the F-18, where he did some of the development work and he did combat uh, overseas. And, and where some of us would, would stop at that point, Jeff then went on to join NASA, uh, the astronaut corps, and flew, uh, flew two shuttle missions and then commanded a third mission. And two of those three missions went to the ISS. And uh, Tim and I, Tim and I got to, were lucky enough to get to work with Jeff after he left NASA uh, at, a, at a local aerospace company that, uh, that, we, that uh, some of us still work for. And uh, so we thought after, as we knew we were going to watch the movie Life, which takes place on the ISS, we thought it'd be great to spend a little time with Jeff and get his thoughts on how uh, the ISS is portrayed and how NASA is portrayed in science fiction and, and uh, just see what he thought and see, uh, uh, I've been looking forward to having this conversation for a while. So thank you again for joining us. You bet. Yeah, it's a privilege. And, and, and thank you for sitting through this movie. I think we <laughs> may, may have to say that up front. Yes. Got it, Tim. <laughs> um, so, you know, I had a number of questions for you. Um, the first and foremost is it seems like every science fiction film has a unreliable radio. So, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the extent to which uh, the ISS is is so much of it is directly um, administered and controlled and, and watched and, you know, you're, you're always, I don't know if you're always in contact with the ground, but you're often in contact with the ground. So these movies always have to find a clever excuse to have the radio no longer work. You know, it, at least in my day, which was 20 years ago, wasn't that uncommon to have communications dropouts or even oh. failures. Um, all the communications from the ISS, I believe still go through satellites and um, because of the orientation of the satellite, you have to switch as you go around the Earth. And um, therefore, there are momentary gaps. And then um, there's a possibility of a, a longer gap of eight or ten minutes that existed uh, in my day. Um, oh. In a gap between coverage of the two primary satellites. Got it. Yeah, and there's a what's the what's the name of that network? There's a name for the network that they use. Tedris. Tedris. Thank you. Yeah, there we go. So, can can you share for for our listeners the extent to which you know all these all these movies tend to make it out to be that people are are either up if it's the shuttle or if it's the International Space Station, kind of doing whatever they want, and people don't really understand how much of your schedule is is circumscribed and controlled from the ground. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, um, every day is mapped out very carefully. Um, and it's it's a 24-hour day, but it often um, often becomes effectively less as, as you shift your sleep hours to be awake for the reentry period, for instance, stay into, into Florida in the space shuttle. Um, and so um, it is heavily scripted to the point that, um, I mean, even your sleep hours are scripted, even though you can't go to sleep on command like that or up for a checklist. Um, and meals are kind of uh, scripted as a block. And, um, and you have some flexibility in some of the blocks that you do. Um, that's for that's for a visiting crew, and for the crews on the space station, um, I think it's a little bit different. So how, how does that work? There's a resident crew, and then there's a visiting staff. How does that? What's the difference? Well, in my day, the shuttle came up and brought supplies and and added pieces to the space station. We were a visiting crew. Um, nowadays, uh, there's a crew turnover. But all the crews, unless it's, say, a, um, some sort of a, a space uh, tourist, a paying, paying person who spends just eight or ten days there, um, that, that would count, I think, as a visiting crew. But for the most part, all the space station astronauts are uh, long-term crew members um, today. Got it. Um, and then I had one more question, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Tim. Um, all, all these movies about either ISS or uh, shuttle, they always portray the astronauts as being sort of cowboys and mavericks. And, you know, they'll, they'll have the first thing that happens when anything weird happens is they throw a procedure out the window and, and do, you know, whatever they feel like. Uh, can I safely say that's not how it actually works? Yeah, that that's a safe assumption. That uh, you're you're not really encouraged to be cowboys up there. Um, there are a lot of procedures. Sometimes they require um, reading in in the gray area, you know, between black and white. And in an emergency, um, while the crew has procedures, uh, they they can deviate as necessary. But it's generally not not done or encouraged. There's generally not uh, an emergency up there that that would justify. Um, a very significant diversion from the procedures. Did you ever have to get creative when you were up there and, and come up with uh, a solution that hadn't been mapped out uh, down on the ground first? Yeah, um, plumbing. Oh, plumbing so, factors into this movie. <laughs> exactly. We, uh, we used to transfer the excess water on the space shuttle, which was the byproduct of making electricity on the space shuttle combining hydrogen and oxygen to get electricity and water, we would transfer that water to the space station because they had no means of making it. Um, and um, on my final flight, I think it was, um, we uh, were missing one of the fittings that connected our water tank to the transfer bags. So I had to come up with a, with a solution to, get the water from the tank into the bag. So was this sort was of like, a, was that sort of like a, a miniature version of the uh, CO2 scrubber stuff they had on Apollo 13? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, except it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as urgent. Right. Was it, wasn't life, uh, <laughs> life threatening. 
Yeah, it was simply getting at the plumbing kit and finding enough pieces that you could you could make the connection. Got it. Yeah, I guess I was I was curious just sort of generally like you, you know my understanding is you were on board ISS kind of early in its life, um, right? You did a lot of construction um, missions for it, and uh, one of the I think other sort of tropes that we see when we see the ISS portrayed in film is that it always looks pretty clean, it looks very like planned out and, and, um, you know, well-organized and all the surfaces are perfectly clean. There's, you know, rarely giant walls of Velcro or, or anything like that. And I was curious how, what, what you saw visually represented on screen compares to you know, the, the, like the lived in experience that, that you had up there. Uh, great question, Tim. And, uh, it is very clean, like a hospital, but what you're, I think you're referring to is the clutter. It mm-hmm. is much more cluttered than you see, um in the um you know in the hollywood depictions of it there's much more equipment more wires uh laptop computers all sorts of stuff hanging off the walls that uh, velcro do or tape to the lockers that that you need quick access to so the, there's also a design guide so my previous employer uh built some payloads for the iss and there's design guides about how much your 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 payloads can extend out from the the uh, experiment rack, right? Like you have to keep a corridor in the center, but it's only like four feet wide, right? Like when people are working on stuff, the uncluttered area in the middle is not huge, right? Yeah, you know, I want to say that the area, so it's a round hole, I think like a 15 foot diameter. And then uh, it's got to be more than that. Um, But the lockers are rounded on the back, square on the front. And so that what, what you have in the space station, the, the core that the astronauts live and work in is square. And it's about eight foot by eight foot square, maybe a little under that. Um, and yes, you obviously don't need that much room, but you've got exercise equipment and sleeping stations and, um, you know, your toothbrush and all, all sorts of things that that have to take up space in that volume. Now, do, do they build the sleeping pods to be alien proof? I'm just curious. Um, you know, interesting <laughs> enough, I was I was uh, in charge of the sleeping pod project ah. where uh, the, the big discussion was, do we need them? Do we need our own little sleep stations, our own little state rooms or, or you know, bunks, whatever you call it? And early on, we thought we could just, camp out like we did in shuttle. Um, But then we decided that for these long, long missions and for morale and privacy and everything else, um, it would be best to have some little state rooms. And of course, they take the place of of lockers that could be used for science. They they take the volume. But I I think they're very, very important. And um, I can tell you that uh, none of the design requirements included um, alien... um, Alien repellent or alien. Uh, alien proofing. Okay. Yes, alien proofing. Well, you know, that's probably yeah, probably probably not uh, a highly uh, a high risk realization on that one. But um, yeah. yeah, let's see. Um, well, I was going to ask about fire. Um, fire, fire plays a big role in this in the plot of this movie. Um, they've got they've got some flamethrowers on board. They got their oxygen candles um, and. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Tell us a little bit about how, you know, 
how how fire is treated on on board this the the station and and shuttle and kind of how you how you train for it and how you deal with it well you want all of the fire coming out of the rocket nozzles and none of it Good. inside the space station how's yep. that Good start. <laughs> the um, seriously, you know, the flame studies are a very important part of the science that goes on up there. But those flames are very tiny, and they're contained in in uh, devices that prevent would prevent them from getting out. There are no flamethrowers, if you will. But what I found interesting in life was the reference to oxygen candles. Um, the oxygen candles are something that were used on the Mir space station the Russian precursor to the International Space Station. And an oxygen candle is something that you burn and it generates oxygen um, to make up the oxygen that's that's been used um, um, by the astronauts. So oxygen candles are used, I think they were a secondary measure on Mir. And the interesting thing that I found about them is that the big fire on Mir that nearly cost astronauts their lives was uh, the result of uh, an errant oxygen candle. For folks who don't know, uh, the, the International Space Station maintains a standard uh, standard atmosphere, right? With a standard amount of oxygen. Yes, exactly right. Which, which you normally wouldn't do, right? If you were going to design a spacecraft, you would design it for a lower pressure um, because you would, you would need less structure, less mass. To, um, to keep your structural margins uh, inside. So maintaining 14.7 PSI is a big deal. And, and it's done because um, it takes one variable out of the science and biology experiment, experiments. You, you, know, you have a pressure that's, that's set uh, as an earthbound sea level pressure. Got it. So, so what do you think of this film? On the bad side, um, it was another alien, you know, another alien gone bad, you know, infecting people and, and astronauts and getting, you know, getting down to earth somehow. Um, but on the good side, they, they did a lot of things really well. Um, even though Tim, it wasn't depicted as, as being as cluttered as the ISS, um, they did a pretty nice job of depicting the inside of a, of a, a space station. And, and the best thing they did was depicting um, zero G or weightlessness. Um, very, very impressive. Um, you can, of course, tell uh, that if, if you watch carefully, there are a lot of clues that it's not actual weightlessness. But uh, to a casual eye, um, a lot of the translations and stuff looked, uh, looked very much like what I remember from from a weightless environment. Tim, do you know how many movies have actually filmed in like on the, what people call the vomit comet that have actually filmed in small amounts of microgravity, just Apollo 13, right? Um, there've been, there've been others. Um, but I, I want to say it's, it's probably no more than, than a half dozen or so. Um, along with, you know, the occasional music video, like, like the, okay, go, um, did, did one on, on board. I think, mm. uh, maybe one of the Russian ones or one of the European ones. Yeah. It was cool. I mean, the the uh, if you look closely, you see like the the zipper tabs uh, don't float. The clothes are not floating right. on the astronauts. They're you know, they're down. But but I had I have to hand it to him. I mean, there were only a couple of spots where the the motion was a little bit jerky, and 
and obviously, um, well, there were a number of spots, but they did a really nice job. So in previous podcasts, Tim has talked a little bit about NASA has uh, an entire uh, organization devoted to helping make sure that nothing, no astrobiology uh, winds up coming down to Earth. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't know a whole lot about the protocols and the firewalls that they talk about in the movie. Um, all of the biology that we did um, during my, my time was um, all from Earth, of course. And, um, and all the, anything that had any possibility of being a toxin was done in a glove box, uh, much as you saw the, the little alien creature. Um, but there wasn't anything, you know, no samples or anything coming in uh, that, that would require us to, to use firewalls. I, I suppose the protocols are there. I'm sure they're there for returning from the moon and anything that would in, a, in the future return from Mars. But um, it wasn't evident to us uh, or something that we talked about during my time on space station. Got it. There wasn't any. What would, what would be a, like, yeah, what would be a, an example of something that would be in a glove box? Like, I mean, we're not talking about like anthrax here, right? No, a rat, maybe a mouse, um, hmm. Uh, something like that. The, they're not, um, yeah, the flames were typically mm -hmm. in glove boxes. Uh, and there's different types of firewalls. There's biological ones and then, you know, others for fire and fluids and things like that. Anything fluid that, that wasn't something that you could eat um, had to be contained. Hmm. Yeah, how do they keep uh... – how do they, you know, there were, there were um, scenes in the movie where somebody was, I think they were picking at something on their skin and it left little globules of blood. People don't realize that, um, you know, there's no ground in the space station. So anything, any dust or, you know, anything that would normally fall on the ground is just sort of floating around in the air. How do they, how do they keep the air clean and, and make sure that you don't ever get contaminants? With filters, just just like on an air, airplane, but I got to tell you, I had to tell you a surprise. I um, had to change a pump that required me pulling a locker out and rotating it away from the wall to access the pump, and there were dust bunnies behind the locker. <laughs> I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. Uh, just just like under your bed. I mean, they looked exactly the same. They were fluffy. They moved around. Wow. Um, so, yeah, but it's filters. And the interesting thing about it is that anything you lose, you let go of, or that comes loose, gets knocked off the wall, it all eventually migrates into one of these, into one of these air filters intakes. And so that, that's where you find everything. Got it. Um, on space shuttle, the pilot had to clean the air filter a couple times a day and you'd find people's spoons and socks and chapstick um, and but everything on shuttle was labeled with a colored dot, so you knew whose it was. Oh, <laughs> nice! All right, so yeah. people couldn't uh, claim ignorance. Right. Oh dear. Right. <laughs> Did they have? Um, can you talk a little bit? In the movie, there were lots of big computer screens. I always love big computer screens, right? So the captain, uh, you know, he had. 12 gigantic computer screens. And of course they had stuff in there. You wouldn't have like 3d maps of the entire uh, area, but can you talk a little bit about what they do? Like how much of that, how, how, 
you know, how high tech is uh, the operational side of ISS? It was built in, you know, in the 80s and 90s. So it's got that technology. The, the way they've kept up with um, all the computer technology is that it's largely run by laptops, which are cycled out every couple of years with fresh operating systems, fresh software, um, and and there are enough backup systems that that you can rely on those PCs. Okay, there were there were something like 40, 40 PCs on the on the space station. Wow! And most of the displays are no bigger than the display on your desk. And those displays, the bigger ones, would be used for robotics, typically, for situational awareness when moving the arm. Um, but navigation and things like that, you know, it's all done. You know, it's fairly automatic and by the ground, but you have access to it through a PC. What What do you think of the uh, orbital stuff in the movie where sort of randomly firing of uh, orbital uh, adjustment engines basically deorbited the uh, ISS? Yeah, the, uh, you know, obviously there's some license there to make it entertaining. Um, the... Um, I'm trying to remember the the exact since it's been a while since I watched the movie, um, the exact contents they were trying to throw off the or they were trying to oh I know where they were trying to kick the alien out of the thrusters right right <laughs> yeah well for, first of all if an alien comes into a thruster and goes up through the tubing if he can get past the valve uh, he's going to end up in a tank right full of hydrazine or something like that which, it's <laughs> not it's not a good place. which people don't like, know hydrazine is not good for anything organic. Yeah, it doesn't give them access to the inside of the space station. Right. Um, and yeah, a puff or two, a no big deal. But yeah, the ISS doesn't carry much ability to maneuver with its thrusters. Um, it, the, the thrusting to keep it in space, the intermittent thrusting that you have to do every month or so is done by a supply craft that oh, docks and okay. pushes it. So currently that would be a uh, and Soyuz. And the, the attitude is Yeah. Yeah, right. Progress or soys or something else, and the um, the attitude is controlled by um, big gyros, big wheels um, rotating out there. Oh, control moment gyros. I actually didn't know that. I didn't know they use control moment gyros. That's cool. Who makes those? Is that a? I was hoping that would be Honeywell or some good Minnesota company. I'll have to look it up. I don't know, but we, we always thought that the life of the space station would be determined by those. Because you, the only way to take them up is in a space shuttle. Mm. And there was one, I believe one changed out fairly early on. Uh, but to my knowledge, the other ones just keep on going. <laughs> I mean, it's rotating machinery. It's, it's what wears out first. Sure. But, but uh, still... somehow they've, they've kept them maintained. All right. Impressive. And maybe it'll last uh, long enough for, for us to bring a sample back to Mars, um, <laughs> back from Mars to test out on the ISS before it uh, – reaches its end of life and to catch yeah, it. Yeah. It is an interesting concept to, to bring the sample back there instead of bringing it to earth. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on, uh, things you saw in the movie that made you think, uh, you know, having been there yourself, when you see it in film would, you know, what's, what's your reaction? You know, it's just like flying movies. I have to remind myself that these, these films are made for entertainment. And um, I think the only thing that really surprised me about life was I looked in the credits and didn't see any um, any um, astronaut having participated or, 
or um, give them, giving them technical advice. Um, if that's the case, they did a great job of, of uh, depicting things without any help from anyone that had ever been there. That was, that was my, one of my big surprises. Yeah. Tim, Tim and I have talked about that the relationship between like the, the, you know, the academic horsepower of the technical advisors and the resulting technical veracity of a movie isn't, there isn't a strong coupling. They sometimes hire very senior uh, technical advisors. Then the, then the directors just throw out their throw out their recommendations. We we both thought that Ad Astra would proclaim you know proclaimed itself to be the most scientifically accurate science fiction film ever, but we we both thought it it was nowhere near the most scientifically accurate science fiction movie. So yeah, yeah and uh, Lovell Jim Jim Lovell told me that you know he advised on Apollo thirteen, and there were a lot of stuff that they did that he just said that is not right, that is not accurate. But um, Ron Howard said, you know, we have to do this, like portray the crew conflict. Mm-hmm. We have to do that to uh, make the movie more interesting for for the viewing audience. Yeah. Can, can you talk one let maybe one last thing um, to cover with with you? It's a pet peeve of mine. And I've just always wanted to ask an astronaut about it. Um, very few movies, I think, portray astronauts as, you know, focused on, you know, excellence and mission accomplishment or mission assurity assurance um, as the folks I've actually met in, in that world. You know, they, they portray astronauts as, as, as we've said before, cowboys and whatnot. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, uh, again, you know, back to the point that Ron Howard made that you, you need to throw some of that in to make the movie more interesting because uh, as you pointed out early on, uh, these astronaut crews working to a, a timeline, a script all day, it's not the most exciting thing to uh, sit in a theater and watch. Um, so you have to throw stuff in there that, that you know, makes it look more interesting. You have to add the human emotion and the drama that, um, that really doesn't exist uh, up on space station. Fair enough. Uh, well, while while you're while you're here and while you're on the podcast, is there any other science fiction films that you've seen that you want to get you want to give a quick shout out to as particularly great or particularly egregious? I don't think so. I mean, they all have value in entertainment, as did life. I mean, you know the the you know the parts of the plot that seem kind of redundant with other movies and things, but but it's always neat to see how how. Uh, filmmakers portray those things. Um, Do you think there's any film that had the kind of impact on uh, recruitment for the astronaut corps that Top Gun had for the Navy? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, The film that had the impact on me was the um, film of Neil Armstrong descending the ladder of the Lunar Module Eagle and Stepping on the Moon when I was 14 years old. Um, Wonderful. That that one still gets me to this yeah, day. Sure. Do, um, but it, it's not it's not science fiction. Right. Um, yeah. and, and, and one last question. Did you see uh, did you see the film First Man and, and what did you think of it about about Neil Armstrong? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I have to remember the film because it's been quite a while. I saw it after it first came out. But um, Neil was a very special individual, and I think 
NASA did well in selecting him for that honor to be the first one to put a print um, on the moon. Um, I will say that um, I was disappointed in Neil that uh, he never reached down and put a palm print on the moon, mm. which is, I think, more identifiable with the human species than a boot print that <laughs> looks almost like an artificial track. I'm still waiting, by the way. I'm still waiting for someone to do that okay. on the moon or Mars. Well, we know some people. We know some. We'll yeah, who, some, I'm sure you <laughs> who very soon hope to <laughs> hope to correct that. So, uh, Tim, Tim, did you have anything else for Jeff? Um, Jeff, if anybody ever made a movie about your life, uh, uh, who, what actor should portray you? Well, somebody smart and good looking, uh, for starters. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, somebody, somebody with a sense of humor, um, somebody that's a little bit crazy, willing to, you know, willing to take risks and things that, a lot of people aren't, um, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say anyone because you'll think that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to promote myself you know, <laughs> to be something that I'm not like Tom Cruise or, you know, Kevin Costner. But, uh, Neither of those guys yeah. is nearly tall enough. They wouldn't, I mean, they're fine actors, but we, we would need somebody that's, that's really yeah. quite tall. Um, how? Yeah. Maybe Don, Don Knotts. What do you think about Don Knotts? Oh, wait. <laughs> He's no longer around. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Uh, well, listen, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's really, uh, it's really a treat, and and uh, I, you know, just appreciate your your point of view on all this, and and thank you so much for your service both with the Navy and with uh, the astronaut corps, and and working together as as we did, and and uh, you know, you and I had. Uh, I, you know, you brought up this whole issue of orbital debris 15, 20 years ago. And to see now, uh, you know, at my most recent job before going back to the aerospace company, uh, you know, we now look at photovoltaic panels and you actually have to design them with a certain amount of debris flux because there's so much in low Earth orbit that if you're if you're going to design a photovoltaic for multiple years, you have to plan on the degradation that comes from debris passing through the, the panels. And, and you were you were concerned about that 20 years ago and you were right. You know, um, it's easy to be concerned about it when when the engineers send you pictures of BB sized holes that go right through the uh, right through the shuttle radiators <laughs> and, and luckily missed the tubes or, or we would have lost a coolant loop. Uh, which is very, very serious problem. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again so much. And uh, we really appreciate it. It's great, great, great to see you. Great talking to you. Again. And, and Tim, you were way too quiet. <laughs> well, uh, I'll have more to say later. <laughs> okay. That sounds good. Okay. So that went about, I think, as we, as we probably thought it would. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, clearly, clearly realistic depiction of everything uh, that goes on on board the International Space Station. Although I, I think uh, Jeff was a little bit more, um, let's say, accommodating maybe to the uh, the choices of filmmaking than, than perhaps you or I might might be. I, I don't think he shares our sarcastic cynicism about um, the nature of filmmaking quite as quite as much as we do. I'm always struck by I was I was watching previews last night for a bunch of science fiction films coming up, and they all looked really aggressively horrible. I mean, basically, people with like 
you know, a digital camera running around Southern California out in the desert, you know, wearing funny suits, um, shooting some video and stitching it together to make a movie. I always wonder why it's so hard to make a good science fiction film, right? Like so much dreck comes out every year. And I wouldn't call this dreck. I would just call this a, a misfire, right? I mean, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about it, but it's not an aggressively terrible movie. I mean, they, they hired a bunch of good actors and they built some good sets. You know, Jeff pointed out the, the microgravity stuff is, is, you know, reasonably well put together. And, and uh, you know, they spent some money on this film. Like, why is it so hard to make good, uh, a good science fiction movie? Um, well, I was doing a little bit of uh, Wikipediaing of, of the film's production, as I usually do before we record, um, and I may have some clues. Okay. Uh, clue, clue number one uh, is that the writers are uh, are also known for the Deadpool series of films, uh, as okay. well as Zombieland, which says to me that they can write uh, snappy dialogue. Right. Uh, they can definitely write write for Ryan Reynolds. Right. Um, uh, but maybe, although I don't know, I would say, I would actually say the characters in, in both Zombieland and maybe, maybe at least the first Deadpool movie are, are more compelling than the characters in this film. Yes, I would agree. Uh, yeah, the second, the second Deadpool movie didn't, it was okay, but yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed, well, actually the second Zombieland film wasn't incredibly great either, but like those aren't. If you told me the people who wrote Zombieland and the people who wrote Deadpool are making a science fiction movie, like I wouldn't automatically go, oh, man, because so often you'll see a major piece of intellectual property and then they'll be like the directors who brought you and then they'll name some horrible movie that I hated. Right. And you'll be like, oh, I can tell that's going to be a train wreck. And then it is a train wreck. Right. So what like if I the- told you that the director of this movie is also known for Morbius? Oh no! <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So, all right. That would be an example of the thing I just said. <laughs> there you go. So they hired good writers and a director who does not have a, a a great pedigree. You know, I'm as you know, I think you know. I'm uh, I'm currently on an obsession about sailing, right? And so mm-hmm. I'm reading everything I can about sailing. And you know, when you go to rent a sailboat. They don't just be like, oh, okay, well, you've got your papers. Uh, great. Here's this million dollar piece of equipment and go, you know, sail it around in these rocky, uh, you know, wavy places. You know, they're like, well, what have you, what have you sailed before? Like, give me your, give me your back, your, your sailing history. Right. And only once they feel good about you, um, will they let you rent a boat from them. Right. If they can do this with sailboats, why can't they do this with films? Like, why do we keep trusting directors who make junky movies? And it's like, if it's a director who has hits and misses, okay, fine. But so many, like, they keep trusting after um, after Brian Singer left the X-Men films, right? They kept trusting the X-Men films to, like, directors that didn't have a history of making good films and surprise, surprise, they didn't make generally speaking really great X-Men films the way they didn't make great other films. Like why do we, why do we entrust, especially franchises that some of us, you know, X-Men are near and dear to my heart. Like why do they keep trusting beloved franchises to uh, mediocre players? I mean, at least Marvel goes out, you know, they found the Russo brothers. They love the Russo brothers. Let the Russo brothers do whatever they want. Right. 
Right. Or, or a Kenneth Branagh, right. For the Thor movies or uh, Taika Waititi, right. You know, like all of these, yeah, right. these folks who not only can make, can make a good movie, but they can make a compelling movie that brings people in and makes the money that, you know, these movie studios exist for. Right. Right. I just don't know why they keep trusting mediocre directors. Like if you give a mediocre director $200 million, they're going to make a mediocre film. They're not going to make a brilliant film. Right. You, there's no there's no Stanley Kubrick out there who's been making crap for 10 years, who just is a misunderstood genius. Right. People who make crap will continue to make crap. Yes. So speaking of crap, um, <laughs> onward and upward. Yes. Um, so what do we have here? We have Life, Life, um, which is a movie that I didn't know existed until you mentioned it on our last podcast. Um, I completely missed this one when it came through in 2017, uh, mm-hmm. but um, pretty decent cast, right? We've got we've got Ryan Reynolds, we have Jake Gyllenhaal, and uh, the amazing uh, Rebecca Ferguson, uh, which we who we recently saw as Lady Jessica in in the Dune remake. Uh, as well as um, our, our uh, Hiroyuki Sanada, uh, who was also right. in uh, Sunshine. Who we loved in Sunshine. I loved him in the first season of Helix before Helix went off the rails, um, the sci-fi channel. And he's mm. in something coming up, too. He's in he's he's in a big production. Um, I don't remember what it is, but he, he's got a, he's got another thing coming up uh, soon. He, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's one of those actors who's just always brings a great performance. It's like if you have, uh, it's like if you have, who's the guy from third rock from the sun, the older guy, Danny DeVito. No, no. Third rock, third rock from the sun. John Lithgow. John Lithgow. John John Lithgow is always fun to watch in a, in a movie, right? He never, he's never boring to watch in a film. Yes. I would have, I would not have, uh, thought of John, John Lithgow. Yeah, Third Rock from the Sun is not the first movie or production that I would think of for John Lithgow, but but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah. Sonata's yeah. like that, right? He's 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 Footloose. he's always right. a lot of fun. And, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They're right. Footloose. Yeah. I blotted uh, that yeah. out of my memory. Or anyway. uh, yeah. Or uh, Buckaroo Banzai. All oh, right. Um, Which I have never seen. Uh oh. Okay. We may I have to add that to our list. Add that to the list right now. <laughs> Uh, which of course right. also has uh, Pete, Peter Weller, right? Peter Weller, yeah. Peter Isn't Weller. Peter Weller the main character? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, neither of those people are in this film. Um, so, so what do we uh, what do we have here? As as we alluded to in in the in the bit at the beginning, uh, we have a, a sample mission from Mars that has been sent sent to Earth, and then fairly near future, right? The International Space Station is still still operating, still on orbit, has some fancy upgrades. Um, yeah, this is like uh, the Martian. This is near yeah. future. There's no yeah. there's no tech here that doesn't currently exist. Yeah. I mean maybe the hologram stuff, I think, but you can maybe you can yeah. maybe squint a little bit and say like ads, ah, maybe it's close enough to an AR kind of thing. Um so we've got this this Mars uh, sample return that has a life form of some kind, uh, micro microscopic single cell life form, uh, being shot back to earth, uh, to be caught by the international space station. And the, the kind of basic setup here is that the, the space station is being used specifically for quarantine for this thing, 
Um, so there's a little bit of planetary protection going on, um, which is right. the thing that, that uh, NASA has, a, has an office of planetary protection that's uh, mostly used to these days to protect other planets from being contaminated by Earth life. But it is uh, was also used for whenever we return something from from space uh, to make just to make sure we don't get into a, some sort of Andromeda strain type situation. And we should find someone who used to work for that office and get them on the podcast. We should check with our network of people who know people who know people and find somebody who used to work there. I would be, uh, I bet, I bet we know somebody who knows somebody. Uh, I'm sure we're no more than two degrees of separation from somebody who worked in that office. Yeah. Um, and we could do that with, uh, with the Andromeda strain, frankly. Right. Um, so, um, the whole, the whole point of the, of using the space station here is that, uh, these people are kind of expendable. Uh, so that we've got our, our crew of, uh, what do we have? Like six folks on here. Yeah. Six, six astronauts. Um, they're kind of expendable in that if somehow this life form turns out to be, uh, terrible, then it's not going to make it to earth and contaminate the earth and kill everybody. Yes, except not all of them are aware of all of the protocols associated with the containment on this experiment. That's what's hilarious, right? Some of them, it's like a game of, uh, oh, that game where you're trying to overwinter during a zombie apocalypse, the winter's something. I don't know. There's a board game. Anyhow, it's it's dire. And, but different, different characters in it ha have different sets of information that they do or do not necessarily share with each other. And that occurs a little bit in this particular case, which is and hilarious. A, that, that, Yeah. And it's a little bit of a... Um, I, was, I was trying to think of the, the compare and contrast for the crew set up here, because uh, it, it certainly isn't how how an international space station crew would be set up, right? They all train together. Um, they all understand what's, what each person's role is, what the mission objectives are. Um, and, you know, it's not, not something where one person could easily step in directly for another person if they become incapacitated or whatever, but, but they certainly have enough cross-training that uh, they, they know what each other's doing. Uh, this feels a little bit more like, um, well, alien, frankly. Um, right. I, like, obviously, with the with alien peril and stuff, but the way that the crew is set up is that it's a little bit more every person for themselves. They're not entirely told what the mission is. Uh, and people are just sort of either withholding information or just not talking about it. Cause yeah, why bother? How could it possibly yeah, I mean, the, be interesting? The alien parallels here are super obvious, right? Up to and including there's like some shadowy commission that the Russian crew member refers to. That is like this movie's equivalent of the Wayland Yutani corporation, right? Yeah. I mean, this movie is alien in ISS, right? Yeah, yeah. You got got a lot of the same beats. You have uh, you have the, the quarantine lab, right? Where you, where you work on the creature. You've got um, yeah, it's it's sneaking around unseen, uh, all that kind of stuff. Arrogant biologist who thinks they can uh, handle it. Yeah. Um, so let's see. One of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk too much with with Jeff about is is how the the spacewalks and the um, robotic arm uh, scenes were set up. So we have two two spacewalks in the in the film, and the first one is kind of right at the beginning. Ronald Reynolds goes out to to basically catch catch the speeding capsule, um, and uh, the setup there is he's he's kind of floating floating outside. In, in his little spacesuit with no tether or anything holding him to the space station. 
there's no, he doesn't have a buddy out there with him. He's all by himself. And then he has a remote control for the robot arm um, on the space station. Begging the question, uh, why not just do that from a shirt sleeve environment inside the station? Right. Why not? Why not? Uh, and I actually just recently read uh, Chris Hadfield's uh, wonderful autobiography, and he talks a little bit about operating the, the robotic arm uh, on the space station. Um, Chris Hadfield, the famous Canadian astronaut, um, part of the reason he was he was on ISS was to operate the arm, which was which was built by Canada. Um, their, their Canadian space agency is very proud of their robotic arm. They have a giant maple leaf on that arm, don't they? Yes, yes. Um, and so, but he talks about some of the challenges of, of operating that arm from inside the space station. Um, you know, your, your visibility is a little bit limited, um, but, uh, you know, potentially being out on the spacewalk would, would help with some of that. Uh, but there's a little bit of uh, maybe playing around with physics and, and what would actually happen if a speeding capsule were, were to be suddenly stopped dead by an arm attached to the space station. I mean, you and I have talked before about the fact that most velocities that we will encounter in outer space are bullet speed or faster, right? Like bullet speed, which is roughly one kilometer per second, is nothing in space terms, right? Like Earth's gravitational well down to low Earth orbit is four or five kilometers per second, which means if you have a speck of dust at the edge of the Earth's gravitational well, when you encounter it at low Earth orbit, it will be traveling four or five kilometers per second, which is like super bullet speed, right? Super duper bullet speed. It's just, it goes in one side of a thing and it makes a thing-sized tunnel through the other thing until it either comes to a stop or comes out the backside of it, right? Um, I mean, it's just, it's railgun speeds. Everything is at railgun speeds, right? Nothing comes in in a way that you can even see it. Now, I mean, it is different. Other things that are in orbit with you, like if you are in orbit and there's other stuff in orbit, yeah, that stuff that's in a similar orbit can come in at, at slower speeds. But stuff from, like, they just always, always, always get it wrong. It's such a pet peeve of mine. I feel like there are certain things that you can, that will tell you that a movie is going to be bad. And like stuff coming in at baseball speeds instead of bullet speeds is one of my pet peeves. Um, I was thinking about it because at the beginning of this movie, they have the stars twinkling. Oh. The stars are twinkling from mm -hmm. the ISS. And of course, stars do not twinkle in outer space. They only twinkle when you are at the bottom of an atmosphere and you are looking through a big, thick atmosphere that's full of all sorts of random current, uh, random atmospheric currents that are going on. In outer space, stars are 100% non-twinkly at all. And they immediately, in the first two seconds of the movie, get that wrong. Yep. yep. Uh, well, so uh, with with the power of Ryan Reynolds operating a robotic arm, they do manage to catch this uh, return sample and bring it on board, take it inside to uh, the isolation lab oh, we were but, talking but, about. Before, before you move on, you pointed out another important thing which is not only do they get things wrong about the speeds coming in, I guess that's what I was saying, but you rightly point out, you can catch a fastball with a baseball glove because a fastball is a big sturdy thing, right? 
But if you if somebody throws you a vase at 90 miles an hour and you catch a vase with a baseball glove, you're going to have shards of glass left because you have to decelerate that vase um, to zero in a very, very small distance. And Tim and I both think about this a lot because we've worked on things at our daytime jobs that involve decelerating things from one speed to another without damaging them. And uh, it's really hard to do, and they always get it wrong. Always, always, always. Yep. Yes, indeed. Um, so let's see. So they bring this thing on board. Um, I have a note here that at some at some point, as they were bringing bringing this creature on board, somebody makes a makes a reanimator joke, um, which uh, is probably the funniest thing in the entire movie to me. Um, maybe we'll maybe we'll put that one on the list. Um, <laughs> I've not seen reanimator. Reanimator. Oh wow! Wow. Okay. Um, what to say is about that, that? Is that is that a um, is that the guy who did Lord of the Rings? Did he do Reanimator? Um, no, no. I think you're thinking of um, Dead Alive. Um, yeah, so that's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah, which is another zombie movie. Um, but no, this is uh, yeah, Reanimator, uh, based on a H.P. Lovecraft movie uh, or book about uh, a guy who brings brings dead dead bodies back to life. Uh, it's it's very ridiculous and silly, um, and stars the great Jeffrey Combs. Uh, later seen as um, the character of Wei Yun on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Ah. Um, but anyway, um, so they bring this thing on board. Uh, it's a little little living creature, and uh, somehow it gets named after everyone's favorite president, Calvin Coolidge. They have a contest, and little kids all over the world vie to come up with the name of the creature. Right. And some kid somewhere suggests Calvin and wins. Calvin. Yeah. Um, Calvin Coolidge. Sure. I mean, that's, that's exactly the inspiring, inspiring name for uh, the first contact with alien life uh, that, that I would think of. Silent Cal, as he was known. Hmm. So let's see here. Um, so our, uh, we're introduced to the uh, the biologist who's working on this. Uh, this is Dr. Barry, I think is his name. Um, and he sets up Calvin in a little uh, glove box. And so this is actually a pretty standard thing, as, as we heard from from Jeff, um, for for doing biological experiments both on Earth and and in space. A little little isolated space to to operate to, to work on on this thing without actually exposing it to the outside environment. It uh, we learn a little bit more about our crew. It's kind of nice. Um, uh, we have um, Hiroyuki Sanada's character. His name is uh, Murakami. Uh, he is a new dad. His his wife gives birth to a baby. Uh, live on video, which he gets to watch from on board the space station. Uh, we learned that Jake Gyllenhaal has been on board the space station for 400 days and doesn't want to go home because, like, he doesn't like people or something. Right. And uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Derry, uh, I said Barry, Dr. Derry, um, Ariane Bakari, um, he's an exobiologist, but he's also, uh, we learn he, uh, when he's on earth, he's in a, he's in a wheelchair. Um, so his, his legs are, are not functioning. Um, 
and just something that's mentioned. I think it's actually kind of neat that it's just kind of mentioned and mm-hmm. then just sort of let to, to go by the wayside and not, nobody makes a big deal out of it. Well, it kind of becomes a plot point later. Yes. Yes. But, yeah. It doesn't get made into a big deal until it needs to be a big deal. Yeah. Um, so what do we have? We've got a, we've got an alien creature in a glove box. But by the way, I, I have to say, I didn't realize until I looked at the Wikipedia article that the Russian woman was supposed to be the mission commander. Like I knew that she understood information that other people didn't understand, but I honest to God did not think of her as the commander. Like if you think about other science fiction films where it's a motley cast of people together, you always know who the boss is. Right. But these characters are sort of, I think somewhat eh, poorly defined. Uh, So it's not obvious to me at all that she's the commander. Yeah. I actually thought that Murakami was the commander. Yeah. He certainly acts a bit like it. Um, uh, and right. And then like Rebecca Ferguson is sort of, sort of in charge, but, but, but more of the like shadowy behind the scenes in charge kind of setup. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, the, the woman playing the mission commander, Olga, I'm not going to try to pronounce her last name in Russian. Um, she's a Russian actress. Doesn't do a lot of American films. So, Nope, probably won't do a lot more of American films either. Yeah, maybe not. Hasn't hasn't done any American films since then. Yeah. Sorry, Olga. Um, yes. So let's see here. Um, so yeah, Doctor Doctor uh, Derry plays around with his his new little friend. Uh, it starts to grow. It uh, dances, I guess. Um, a little bit of a Ghostbusters two kind of thing. Little piece of slime dancing to, to whatever, mm-hmm. um, and it, it starts interacting with him. Right, it's, it's growing. It's like kind of maybe playing playing with him a little bit. Um, and something goes wrong in the lab. It's like there's a there's like a release of gas or something, or like a clamp fails or or whatever, and and the thing goes into hibernation. Right. And somebody says something that I wrote down at this point. They said, they say nothing in that lab can malfunction. Which yeah, stood out, yeah. Yeah. Which stood out to me is like, well, of course it can because everything can malfunction. Um, right. And if it's made uh, by yeah. man, it can malfunction. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is either a terrible design decision. Um, right. Nothing in that lab can malfunction because if it does, we're all dead. Um, or, a uh, kind of poor, poor operations choice, which is you know nothing, nothing can malfunction um, because like we've we've designed it so well that it it cannot possibly fail. Um, but they bring it back to life. Uh, they zap it with some electricity. Uh, it gets gets happy again. Uh, grabs the doctor's hand, and uh, this scene is is also I think shown in the preview uh, for the movie. Um, setting this up as as a horror film is, is it right. it attacks him right yeah I mean the second that it's it's wrapped around his finger and everybody's like oh isn't that cute and you're like what the heck are you talking about right like that's um, everything has gone wrong you know I mean there obviously should have been a protocol that you don't put gloves on the cre- on any organic thing right you you manipulate use your gloves to manipulate tools that touch the thing 
right? But you shouldn't have that thing directly touching because as we talked about in the bit, there's permeation of materials by other materials, right? There's no such thing as a perfect glove. Like everything, when you go to do a engineering operation or a biological operation, you look at the compounds that are going to be involved and you pick the glove that works best, right? But there's no perfect glove. And and there's no way that there would have, I don't know. It's just like, I saw that and I'm like, well, of course, this is the beginning of everything going wrong. Yeah. And they're all just like, oh, it's so cute. It's cute. It's cute. Um, you're exactly right. And and a, a glove is, is what's known as, as PPE, right? It's personal protective equipment. And PPE is your last choice of protection against uh, a hazard or a threat of, of some kind. Um, the, the things that you choose much much before that is, is you try to eliminate the hazard, you try to design the system so you don't have, have to interact with the hazard, um, or you, you put you know, physical barriers in place, which, you know, they have some of those physical barriers, but but you're you're right. Like, this is this is the last line of defense, and it's just kind of a glove. Like, it's not, not going to help very much in the end. Um, you shouldn't bet your life on that glove protecting you. Nope. As Dr. Derry found out. He, yep, sure did. Uh, fortunately, uh, at this for him at this point, he just loses the use of his hand um, in a pretty horrific manner. Um, and then uh, let's see, a, a, a series of rapidly escalating um, escape attempts and and actions by our, our little friend Calvin here. Um, it then attacks the mouse. So there's like a mouse that's been set in the um, same environment, I guess, is, is a bit of a canary in a coal mine kind of thing for looking but, for... But, but it's it's Chekhov's mouse, right? Yeah, you don't yeah, put yeah. a mouse in a biological situation unless you're going to tear the mouse to shreds or, or possess the mouse or transform the mouse. Nothing good can happen to the mouse in this situation. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, a Ryan Reynolds character being a Ryan Reynolds character, he has to go into the lab, right? break break the quarantine of the lab, go in, pull out the doctor, uh, and deal with the situation. So let me back up just a step here. Um, one of the things that is interesting to me about a bunch of science fiction films is the idea that the monocellular creature can assemble itself very quickly into a highly intelligent uh, creature, right? And we see this in movies that are not terrible, like The Thing, right? The thing does this, right? The, oh, thing, yeah. the thing exists on a cellular level and a, a single cell of the thing can take over an entire human being. That's part of what makes them so dangerous. Um, but, but they can assemble themselves and form highly intelligent structures, right? So this Calvin starts off as just a couple of little cells and like literally an hour or two or three or whatever later, it's taking a metal uh piece of equipment and breaking the piece of equipment and using it as a tool to cut through the glove and then proceed to go on to do all sorts of highly intelligent things. Right. So it's, it's, I mean, it it doesn't, it's not part of what makes this a horrible movie, but um, it is interesting to think about whether or not how much intelligence can be programmed at the cellular level, right? Like humans take, you know, arguably, let's say 25 years uh, to make good decision making after uh, they first emerge from the womb, right? So a creature that doesn't know anything about Earth, that doesn't know anything about us, 
is like operating in our environment a few hours later after assembling itself out of, you know, a mouse carcass, among other things. Right. And it doesn't, I, I would say it doesn't necessarily have to demonstrate much in the way of intelligence, um, right? It's, it's sort of looking for, I don't know, energy differentials or, or, or things like that, right? You, you know, you look for food, you look for water, used, you look it, for it like, used it used Derry's metal probe. It broke oh, yeah. it in half yes. and then used the broken tube <laughs> right. to cut its way through the glove in much the same way that a chimpanzee or some other tool using uh, vertebrate would. I had uh, completely forgotten about that. Thank you for the reminder of that terrible piece of um, filmmaking. <laughs> um, and, right. And, and that, that scene is, is drawn out just enough to, to, to telegraph exactly what's going to happen. Right. Like, you know, the glove is, you know, it's getting through the glove. And yeah. that, that was actually a fun, you know, the film has some fun with its horror elements, right? Oh, it yeah. shows you things and basically winks at you and is like, this is all going to go horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, as we talked about with, with Jeff, uh, there's a flamethrower in, I'm going to call it. Oh my scenario. gosh. The flamethrower right. in the lab. And there would be. Sure. Yeah. A flamethrower. Why wouldn't you have a flamethrower in the lab? Like I can, I can see a, a protocol. I can see having a button on the outside of the lab that says, if you press this button, we will cycle the inside of that lab to 500 degrees Fahrenheit for six hours. Right. And, and just cook anything organic in there. Right. But the idea of having an actual flamethrower is so incredibly bonkers. Yeah, right. I, yeah, I was thinking some something similar with like the the glove box, right? You could have you could have a button that says like, take your hands out of the glove box, and then push the button that that burns everything that's that's inside the box. If it was designed to to handle the heat and and the exhaust and all that stuff, um, right. you know, which which is another interesting thing that they don't they don't have in this lab is is either something like that or something that just like says like vent all the atmosphere out of the lab or inject right. the contents into space uh, or, right. or anything like, like venting a, having a valve that would vent everything in that into outer space or at least bring pressure to zero is a really easy thing to do okay. right but they don't have it no but they do have no. flamethrowers no um it's like having see. it's like having a high power rifle in a space station like what are you actually going to do with a high power rifle in a space station right nothing yeah. good Nothing, nothing good. And and if you if you use it just a little bit wrong, then uh, either a lot of people die or everybody dies. Yeah. Um, and so uh, yeah, Ryan Reynolds. I, I would say well, he he. I would say he learns this lesson, uh, but he doesn't actually because he's dead by the time the the lesson uh, resolves itself. So so he's tried trying to catch this thing with the with the flamethrower. Uh, it escapes his attacks and uh, ends up climbing inside his body and then he dies horribly right and again that element, uh, of, that yeah. element of the horror was nice like when you yeah. see it go down yeah. his throat you're like yeah oh yeah no that's not yeah uh no, and no then and, yeah and then as as you say with with the the winking right you've got a flamethrower it's floating around it's in sort of like uh pilot light mode i guess uh which also seems like a terrible design choice uh, mm -hmm. but it makes for an excellent next beat in in the scene which is that uh it sets off all the fire extinguishers and uh there's a fun a fun moment as they try to like stop 
stop these uh, what look like regular old uh, sprinkler systems <laughs> popping out of the ceiling. Somebody went down to Home Depot and bought some sprinkler heads, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, they don't. They don't look very high tech, do they? They pop out of the. They do pop out of the ceiling, and there's some some nonsense about how they have to each manually be shut down. So, uh, uh, Murakami is like at the gigantic computer control, shutting these down individually. And of course, there's these this tension, and of course, Calvin's trying to get to one that's operating, and of course, he he escapes right before Murakami closes the last vent pretty much pretty much playing whack-a-mole uh with 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 the fire extinguishers um yeah the um yeah fire suppression system on on board the space station is is is, uh significantly different um they've got either either a a, a water-based foam um that they can spray out of a canister uh, at something that's on fire um so that the foam kind of sticks to whatever's burning and and uh, absorbs the heat and puts the fire out that way, um, or or just use carbon dioxide um, to smother a fire, um, not whatever if, this if thing people, is. people, yes, if if people aren't in the space, right? Yeah, um, yeah. The whole thing. I mean, the whole problem with trying to make Alien on the International Space Station. I'll just say it right now: is the International Space Station is designed to exactly not do what the Nostromo did which is have many miles and hundreds of feet of conduits that pass from everywhere to everywhere, right? You can't do that on the International Space Station because then if you get a pinhole leak anywhere, you vent the whole system, right? So everything is super modular on the International Space Station and systems are not interconnected to each other. And, you know, I'll jump ahead to the idea of Calvin allegedly goes from the fire suppression system out to a... Uh, maneuvering thruster engine, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. they've, they, he's, he's somehow, if you could, if you could as an organic thing go from like the venting system inside a, inside a module to the thruster system that vents into vacuum, we have bigger problems than just the existence of a alien life form on the ship. Because if you could do that, a molecule of oxygen can do that, and a molecule of nitrogen can do that, and then the whole system starts venting out into space, right? Yeah, and the space station is set up that way, right? Because you have people on board, and and you want to keep all the things that are people compatible away from all of the various fluids and systems that are people incompatible. Things like coolants, things like propellants, um, things like vacuum of space. And, and, and all that stuff. Like you, you have to, you have to keep those things very separate. Yes. Many of the propellants that they use in outer space are particularly noxious to human beings, right? Or anything organic. So the idea of Calvin, you know, swimming around and let's say, for instance, a a, a little jar of hydrazine, Calvin would rapidly be decomposed down to his, you know, down to his basic molecules. If he was sitting in a, in a vat of hydrazine, hydrazine is really bad stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good boy. Okay. Um, so let's see here. Um, so he's escaped. He's, he's escaped. He disappears. And the next uh, next indication they have of where he might be hiding uh, is he inexplicably. Uh, well, we'll fi- find out later. He inexplicably finds his way to the uh, radio transmitter, um, their primary way of communicating with Earth, because it fails. 
And, and again, problem- again, he's got to be pretty smart if he figures out where the radio transmitter is and breaks the radio transmitter, right? Yeah, like why? Why is he even there? Uh, right. He's. Uh, we, we find out uh, on the spacewalk that he's he's there to drink the coolant, I guess, um, for the system. Which I guess, sure, maybe he's able to consume. Um, what would that coolant be? Probably some sort of like glycol. Glycol. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Um, would you, I don't know, whatever it, it could work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fine. But we have another solo spacewalk. Um, right. This one is, uh, who does this spacewalk? The commander? No, the other female. Wasn't there another female? Yeah. No. I guess it was Olga. Yeah. Olga, what's her name? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it is the commander. So she goes on a spacewalk um, again, solo, um, which right. is not, not the usual thing. Um, you always want to have a buddy with you in case something goes wrong, but it's a horror movie. So of course you're not going <laughs> to, you're not going to have a buddy with you. And um, she goes on the spacewalk. It's an emergency spacewalk. And so one of the, the other characters points out, like you haven't, you haven't had your nitrogen deep, um, what you say, your nitrogen detox uh, before your spacewalk. And so this is this is actually this doesn't actually come up at all in the spacewalk itself, but um, it's it could be important, right? This could make for slightly better storytelling, um, right? Which is that the the atmosphere inside of the spacesuits that are used on board the International Space Station is a um, is a reduced pressure atmosphere. If you can't, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you go, if you if you take if you take a um, a spacesuit and you fill it with with air at fourteen point seven pounds per square inch of pressure that we have uh, here on Earth at sea level, it becomes extremely difficult to maneuver. Um, it's a, you know the whole thing is made of cloth and uh, almost entirely, um, and so moving that thing around is basically you would be in you know inside a giant balloon made of you know, canvas and thick materials and that sort of thing, and you'd you'd quickly get get super tired, um, be unable to to really operate the thing, and especially the gloves, um, which are, which are always the hardest to, hardest on the body um, to operate. And so the um, the pressure that you use in in the um, in your spacesuit is so much lower than what's used on board the space station is that you have to breathe out all the the nitrogen that is. Uh, in your bloodstream before you do a spacewalk, and so there's a protocol for this, and, and every every astronaut who goes on the spacewalk from from ISS does this, uh, and and it gets the nitrogen out of their out of their system, because if you don't, uh, you basically get get something called the bends, where in that lower pressure environment, the nitrogen bubbles out of your blood, um, and can create these bubbles that that will catch somewhere in uh, either in your circulation system or in your lungs or um, in various other your places. Brain. Don't want, don't want bubbles. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that could have been, could have been a cool addition to, uh, to the spacewalk scene. I was kind of hoping for it when they mentioned that she wasn't doing her nitrogen uh, detox, but uh, they found, nope. they found actually another interesting way for her to die. Um, yeah. So let's see. So, I mean, first off, you have to, I mean, the whole thing about she goes out and she's checking the, you know, the cooling fluid in the, in the radio, um, blah, blah, blah. And Calvin pops out, right? Which none of that works in micro, in a vacuum, right? 
I mean, yeah. they go to great pains to point out that Calvin is an organic life form. They don't, you know, they say something like he's made of similar stuff to you and me or whatever. Like he's not like an alien where it's made of a completely different biology that could maybe handle a vacuum. I mean, I think they specifically say like he can't handle a vacuum. He has to have, he has to have oxygen, right? Well, yeah. if he has to have yeah. oxygen, how is he how is he floating around out in the vacuum? Later in the movie becomes an extremely important plot point that he needs oxygen. He needs oxygen the way we need oxygen, right? Yeah, yeah. And, He's and, floating and, around yeah. in a vacuum, right? And we, you know, we have we have terrestrial organisms, you know, like tardigrades that can survive some some period of time um, with exposure to vacuum, uh, but something like a tardigrade is only able to do that by um, basically being desiccated, right? So all of the, all the water goes out of a system and, and it, it, it goes into a state of, of effectively hybridation, uh, which is, which is not what, what Calvin does to survive the vacuum of space. Uh, he's just, he's just kind of hanging out and moving around. Yeah. The classic case of when the plot requires thing A, it's thing A. And when it requires not thing A, it's not thing A. Um, so what happens, uh, so Calvin gives her a hug, Calvin gives her a hug. It somehow breaks the coolant system, um, inside her, uh, inside her spacesuit, And that coolant does the thing that it would do in microgravity, which is goes anywhere and everywhere. And so her, her helmet starts to fill up with, uh, with coolant. Uh, you, you hear over the radio, don't swallow, it's toxic, which is another point where I may have uh, snorted throwing the beverage that I was drinking. Throwing a shoe at your screen. Yeah. Because um, it, it's, it's, it's perilous and terrifying without being toxic. So this, is, this has happened a couple right. of times. Uh, most, most uh, I guess most famously, maybe um, back in 2013, uh, almost 10 years ago as we're recording this, uh, an a Italian astronaut named uh, Luca Parmitano was doing a spacewalk and saw a giant blob of water inside his helmet. And um, they had to basically abort a spacewalk, get him back inside and, and kind of recover uh, from that and, and, and soak it up. But um, in, in this case, um, yeah, there's a leak somewhere inside the, his, his spacesuit. And um, the, the scary thing is, is drowning. Right. Mm -hmm. This is like, this is a terrifying thing. Like to, to, to drown, to, to not be able to see where you're going. Um, actually had Hadfield writes about this in, in his autobiography as well is, is once you get a little bit of water in your eye, um, the water's going to stay there. Right. Right. Surface, yeah. Surface pressure, uh, or surface tension. Yeah. Yeah. Microgravity just doesn't, we're not designed to work in microgravity and we can work in microgravity in very specific circumstances, but like a partially liquid environment is not one of them. Because even if you don't directly drown, even if you just inhale a golf ball sized thing of water, now you've got a golf ball sized thing of water in your lungs, right? Mm -hmm. And depending on where it goes in your lungs, um, you know, you're at risk of pneumonia, you're at risk of all sorts of awful stuff, right? This is also one of the reasons why they go to great lengths to try to make sure that if people get nauseous, they don't vomit around the inside of the, the capsule because ingesting somebody else's vomitus is actually a lot like ingesting water in terms of the things that are bad about it, uh, quite aside from the fact that you're sucking up somebody <laughs> else's vomit. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so, uh, basically, you know, regardless of the toxicity of, of the, the coolant, um, she ends up, uh, you know, she, she's got Calvin with her, um, and, and decides ultimately that she does not want to go back in to the space station, um, to, to protect the rest of the crew where she does the, the, the commander's sacrifice. I actually thought, I actually thought that was one of the best scenes in the whole film because she gets to the door and Jake Gyllenhaal is trying to open the, the airlock door and somehow it needs her to also work it on the outside, which doesn't make any sense at all, but whatever. Um, so they both have to work it and he realizes that she's going the opposite direction and countering his ability to open the airlock door. And he's like yelling at her and yelling at her. And then I think it's Rebecca Ferguson who says like, you know, David, she's doing that on purpose. She doesn't want you to open the door. She doesn't want to let Calvin in. And it's just it's a it's it's a it's a good scene, and the rest of the movie <laughs> didn't live up to it. Yes, uh, isn't there isn't there a point where isn't Calvin tried to like grab on to the handle and 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 open the hatch at, at one point in this scene? She might she might have been fighting him again. He's really smart. He knows how all the hatches work. Sure, sure. Why not? Uh, okay, so let's see. So we're now down uh, two. Two of the six crew members are now dead. Uh, one of them still has a broken hand. Uh, Calvin's outside, um, trying to find a way back in through the thruster system. Yes, which, which does they not see... connect to the inside of the ship at all. Right, right. Uh, which they 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 see uh, this happening by looking at the temperatures on uh, on the thrusters. Um, and this was another interesting point as well. Again, uh, trying to stick with the theme of not just ragging on the movie all the time, and but pointing out interesting things about how stuff works in space. Right. Um, so the the thing that was interesting to me about this was so they're watching these, uh, I think, analog temperature sensors, basically like a little dial with a with a needle on it, um, showing the temperature in each of these thrusters that are allegedly scattered around the International Space Station. Right, um, and what that's telling them is that they're, they're like sensing the temperature of Calvin, right? He's, he's, he's in there, right? He's a, he's a living thing. So he's creating heat and whatever else. Uh, the, Which requires oxygen to metabolize, sure, but whatever. Sure. Okay, yeah. sure. Um, right. The outside of his body would be at this point, zero. Rock hard. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Brittle, um, brittle. Yeah. Oh, well. But the interesting thing to me is, uh, on a on a temperature sensor for a thruster, we'll get, we'll, we'll get complaints from people. It's yeah. like three degrees Celsius or three degrees Kelvin, sure. right? Sure. Yes. Not absolute zero. Background radiation as such that the universe is like, and honestly, at, at Earth orbit, it wouldn't be three degrees, right? right Kelvin, right. It, would, not, it would be yeah. like two hundred degrees Kelvin. I'm sorry, I I, I broke your stride. <laughs> That's right. Um, so a temperature sensor on a, on a thruster like this, um, and, and I'm, I'm basing those off of what little I know of, of the thruster capability that's, that's actually on the space station now, um, is uh, if a thruster operates by combustion, right, it's burning, burning a fuel and an oxidizer together, the temperatures that you're interested in as that thing is operating are going to be in the, like, the hundreds of degrees, uh, and so that sensor is not going to be super sensitive down at the like, hey, there's a five pound mass of possible life somewhere in here uh, warming things up. 
Yeah, that, that's the thing that people don't understand. Most scientific devices are only good for about two orders of magnitude. So whatever it is you're interested in, if full throttle is whatever, right? Let's say full throttle is 100 degrees Celsius, right? Then you're only typically good down to about one degree Celsius, right? Mm -hmm. There are systems, there are some systems that are good for more than a couple of degrees of or a couple orders of magnitude, but they're very rare and far between, and they wouldn't be in the sensors that tell you whether a thruster is firing or not. So, yeah, yeah. it's just the universal measuring thing that measures like eight orders of magnitude just doesn't exist in engineering. Yep. Yep. Um, so uh, another whack-a-mole scene follows where basically um, <laughs> Kelvin tries to sneak in through a thruster. Uh, the They try to fire that thruster to, to kill Kelvin. And they're just kind of sort of like basically like pew, 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 shooting off various thrusters, um, which perhaps, perhaps obviously, perhaps not obviously, it has the effect of lowering the orbit of... Which of is hilarious, thing. which is hilarious. Nobody's thinking, hey, by the way, could we be prematurely deorbiting? I actually thought Calvin was supposed to be so smart. I actually wondered during that scene if Calvin was intentionally climbing into the vents that he was climbing into to try to induce a deorbit burn by the space station. He's so smart. We don't know. Sure. But. Why not? Why not? <laughs> um, let's see here. So, so he comes in, comes in through the thrusters somehow. Um, they, and again, if you if you could climb in from a vacuum into the interior of the vehicle, then oxygen and nitrogen could follow you back out and and you know empty the yep. whole ship. Or, or the hydrazine that's operating those thrusters can make its way into the uh, into the atmosphere of the space station and kill everybody. Right. Quickly. Yes. Yes. Um, let's see. So um, this is about the point that the next time they find Calvin, he is on – he's hijacked he's, – he's He's hijacked the legs of Dr. What's his name? Yeah. There's a scene where they're going around the ship looking for him. And the doctor, you know, the doctor has been in and out of coherence. You know, he he got his hand banged up and he's never really recovered. And so he's in sort of a dreamy state. So they're all looking for Calvin. But, you know, we get a hint early on when, when Dr. Derry is, you know, hanging out with Calvin that he's – that. His his grasp on reality maybe was maybe getting thin even before his hand got destroyed, right? Yeah. Uh, and and so yeah, it turns out that he uh, while well, he starts acting even stranger, uh, he has um, some sort of medical emergency. They revive him briefly, and then uh, and then he dies, and they find out that. Uh, the, the problem was that Calvin was just like hanging out on his legs and eating slowly, him, I think. slowly eating him as opposed to yeah. uh, exploding him from the inside as, as was done with, with Ryan Reynolds. Here's my question. Did he know? Was he supposed to have done that intentionally? Cause he says some things like Calvin must live or, you know, Calvin, Calvin has just as much right to live as you or I do or, you know, some sort of words to those effect. Did you get the sense that he intentionally let Calvin live? Like he found him as they were going around the ship 
in a scene that was that took place off camera, and he let Calvin uh, live around his legs. I kind of I kind of thought that uh, after it was revealed to be on him, um, but yeah, it was super unclear as to whether that was intentional or 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 happenstance. I mean, I feel like he couldn't have not noticed that Calvin showed up when Calvin showed up. I mean, and the fact that it happened off camera to me is interesting, right? They had no problems showing Calvin lots and lots and lots. It's not like they didn't have budget for all the CG work. And they intentionally had it happen off camera. Um, I just wonder, I don't know. It seems in, in line with his character that he would intentionally let Calvin live on him and start yeah. consuming him. Yeah. Which would have made, I don't know if they played that up a little bit, it would have made it more, more interesting, more like alien, frankly. Um, right. right. You get the, you know, the Bishop character kind of situation of, you know, we have to preserve this, this thing at all costs. Uh, let's see. So that, um, after he's dead, he's no longer a good food source for Calvin and he ends up chasing, um, Murakami, I think. Yeah. Although Calvin doesn't consume dairy, you kind of think that Calvin looks knows who its friends and its enemies are, and that it, like like he leaves Dairy's body because Dairy's yeah. body is still just hanging out. Yeah. Un unlike yeah. the rat and unlike uh, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll just continue to refer to Ryan Reynolds as Ryan Reynolds because he plays the same character in every movie. Yeah, he, he's playing Ronald, Ryan Reynolds. He's he's playing Deadpool in space, basically. Yeah, which, which is fine. Like, that's whatever. It, it makes him lots and lots of money. It works for him. Um, let's see. So uh, somehow it, it, it gets more interested in, um, uh, in, in Murakami, chases him into a sleeping pod, which is somehow alien-proof. Um, right, as, as they uh, are. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which is cool. Uh, we get to see the... Um, these body trackers. So, so we talked about the one, the one sort of weird, like sort of near future technology that's on the space station um, is this like holographic view of the, of the space station with little indicators for where everybody is. Um, and it, and it's at, at first I, I didn't quite put all the pieces together. Like why is everybody wearing these kind of dumb looking bracelets? Um, and it, and it turns out that the, the dumb little bracelets are on, I think they're, wrists and ankles and they're like you can kind of see where everybody is it's sort of this weird little kind of like almost like an ar kind of situation um and of course it shows up as a plot point because it turns out calvin has somehow consumed one of these trackers uh that that was on uh dr Derry's leg presumably as he was munching away um and so now they can track him now they can track Calvin through the um, through the station, which makes for a little bit of a an interesting um, scene as, as they're as they're trying to move him from one place to another, um, so that they can isolate him in one of the uh, was it kind of isolate him off to one side and, and then vent vent that part down to down to vacuum finally, or or pump all the oxygen out, whatever, do yeah. something to inert him. Yeah. And they mentioned they showed him early on. They showed him being very sensitive to atmospheric composition, right? right. And that he could yeah. be inerted just by changing the the relative gases. Yeah, and 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 nothing about this solution makes any sense at this point. 
Right, because we we know now that he's just perfectly happy bouncing around outside uh, in, right. in vacuum. Like, you know, he wants to get back in. But if, if you know, if you know enough about how the space station works, and presumably these astronauts do, and how things are interconnected, we've already seen that he can find any way to get back in. Um, we've already seen that he can survive for a pretty significant period of time in vacuum. Like, if you're going to vent down half of this half of the station to try and at least incapacitate him, like you have to know that it's just not going to work. But they do it anyway. Uh, we do get to see one uh, Calvin Eye view shot mm-hmm. at, at this point. Uh, it's a little bit like the the creature from the abyss. Yeah, I thought of it very much like that effect. Yeah. Um, and it's around it, it's around this time that the quote unquote rescue team shows up, right? Yes. Yeah. Were there people on board this rescue vessel? Or was it it's un- hard to tell because it was so horribly, horribly done. But yes, there were. They were in there. They just they never got out. They never had a chance to get out because Calvin attempt, uh, assaulted them basically the second they opened the hatch. Huh. Cool. They were in there because they were shooting. They were shooting at Calvin and they were, there was mayhem going on down at the capsule, but it was at the far end of a long hallway. Yeah, but yeah. They, but they would have come and killed everybody, right? That was yeah. their, that's what they were there to do. They were there. What I wrote down was that uh, I was like, "Oh, the Soyuz is here. It's here to destroy everything." Oh no, it's here to push the ISS into deep space. And, pr- right, and which, which, as we've here. discussed, is not a thing that you can do no. um, easily. You, you're not. You're not with the Soyuz going to impart five kilometers per second. Um, velocity on a many hundred ton uh, space station. This is also, by the way, just as a sidebar, you know, they do this all the time. They did this in Space Command or what Space Force, what it was called, the horrible Netflix uh, science fiction show with uh, uh, Steve Carell. Yeah, Steve Carell. Nudging things out of Earth orbit, nudging things into the sun. They nudge the... uh, uh, Things get nudged into the sun all the time in science fiction stories. Do you know what the delta V is to the sun? If you want to deposit something in the sun, it's a lot. Thirty. It's thirty kilometers per second. It's a huge. It's more than the delta V to get out of the solar system. <laughs> Getting stuff to the surface of the sun is really hard, which is why we don't go to Mercury very often. Right. Um, yeah. Or 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 we or we do flybys, right? Because we don't we don't try to decelerate it that that far in. But anyhow, yeah, yeah. So they're going to nudge it, God knows where. I don't know. That that whole thing was just an opportunity for Calvin to eat some more people, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's 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 getting getting snacky. But um, it was sort of like it was sort of like yeah. the Wayland Yutani minions at the end of the third Alien movie, right? Where they show up on the. Uh, planet on the on the on the forge planet and uh they're just there to kill everybody right you don't even really get to know any of them they're just they're just a a force for nihilistic destruction anyhow yeah okay somehow through this sort of like fight scene something something ends up happening where the the space station has is is going to deorbit in 39 minutes um, right, which is fast. Uh, all, all of a sudden, right? Yeah, yeah. The the it, yeah. Somehow the Soyuz because the Soyuz 
motor goes off or hits something or whatever, something knocks it. Again, it gets nudged, right? It gets nudged <laughs> out of or It's easier to nudge something into, you know, a, a deorbit than it is to at least nudge it out of the out of Earth's orbit, right? That That's yeah. at least... Yeah. I don't know what the delta V is to deorbit, but it's probably only... The orbit is proportional to the orbital speed, right? Or orbital radius proportional to orbit speed, right? So if you're uh, if you're doing ten kilometers per second, if you lose one kilometer per second, yeah, it's not gonna it's, it's not gonna deorbit quickly. But right. It would, and, it would take weeks or months to have the impacts felt, but that happens. It, that's it, happened in a half dozen movies mm-hmm. where they deorbit things really, really easily. Yeah. Yeah, and it would take a it would take a lot of fuel too, right? Um, right. The space station is is massive, and so in order to change its velocity that that much, you're going to need more than just a Soyuz um, to 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 deorbit it that quickly. I would think. Right. Right. Um, you know, maybe you know, maybe if you had a a space shuttle show up or a I don't know Falcon Nine or something, um, you might be able to to get away with something like that. Um. Okay, so let's see. Um, so now the clock is ticking, clock is and ticking. and they're worried that uh, maybe Calvin would survive. They're like, "Why don't we just let the space station blow up?" Which isn't yeah. a bad question to ask. And and the sensible response is, "We can't guarantee that Calvin would get dest- destroyed in the orbit." Both of those things are actually reasonable plot elements to have happen if they are in fact deorbiting. But you have to get the clock ticking, right, to yes, get the artificial urgency. Yeah, and uh, and as as you alluded to in, in the in the bit at the beginning of our episode here, um, s- odds are of something surviving are, are actually pretty decent, um, and and I, I you know I forget exactly what the predictions are for for the ISS when when it eventually reaches end of life and gets deorbited, uh, but when I was in college, I worked on a um, on a satellite. Uh, it was called called Snowy, the Student Nitric Oxide Explorer. Um, it was uh, basically uh, I want to say four feet long um, by maybe like three three feet across um, satellite that operated in, in low Earth orbit. Um, looked at the sun, looked at the upper atmosphere, and it was uh, deorbiting while I was in in um, in charge of it. And I worked a little bit with um, folks at NORAD uh, who do tracking of everything that's in orbit and entering our atmosphere. And even even on a, a little little tiny dinky satellite there, um, it was maybe less than less than 100 kilograms, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, there was a pretty decent chance that a small a small chunk of the structure of this thing would have survived reentry. Um, and so, you know, if five pounds of aluminum from a, a little tiny satellite can survive, um, certainly a big chunk of an International Space Station, um, potentially with some little piece of extremely resilient life form inside of it, could could survive uh, reentry like that. Yeah, I mean, anything that's a tank, right, that's designed to handle high internal pressures will handle high external pressures. Oh, yeah. um, it, it can melt, right, if it's aluminum or composite, but... Um, yeah, you know, Calvin going and hiding in a pressure tank somewhere is a bad is a bad day for Earth, right? Yeah. Um, as there uh, as the clock is ticking, there uh, somebody somebody get gets out the book Goodnight Moon. I guess there were complaints. I guess <laughs> that the publishers of Goodnight Moon did not like that. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Sure. I don't know what to say. Yeah. Um, the, 
the reading of it was was actually less dramatic than was made out to uh, to be the case in 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 the trailer. If you watch the trailer for this, there's a yeah. there's a reading of Goodnight Moon uh, as voiceover in the trailer, uh, which is made to sound like really ominous. And I I I can I can just see the meeting in uh, in the production office where some intern runs in and is like I've got it I've got it we're gonna read Goodnight Moon and like this this ominous voice and it's it's gonna be terrifying and everyone's like great job kid uh, yeah okay um, let's see so ISS is going down um, it's getting cold on board for some reason that I forget. Um, I don't know that I care at this point. Um, uh, oh, after after being chased around the cold space station for a little while, they the two remaining astronauts decide to put on their spacesuits um, to at least give themselves a little bit more uh, insulation. It's actually a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they use, as you mentioned earlier, these oxygen candles, um, which we talked about with with Jeff Ashby and uh, our discussion with him quite a bit. <laughs> Um, let's see. Lifeboats. So, oh my god! So. Oh my god! I wrote down. I wrote down. So I take notes as I'm watching the film. I wrote down. Lifeboats are meant for one person, and I just, I just wrote down that quote because I'm like, what do you say, right? Like that's yes. so absurd. That's yeah. so completely nothing that NASA has ever done or would ever do. No, no. Um. Right. I mean, it, it sets up it sets up the end of the movie uh, and, uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and the twist, the dramatic twist at the end of the movie. Da, 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 da. Right. Um, the yeah. So the, the lifeboat situation is actually an interesting one that's happening uh, um, like right now as we're recording this. The um, there is a there's a there's a problem with the lifeboat situation on the International Space Station right now. Uh, and the, the really short version of that is um there's a crew of uh, crew of three um, that that went up uh, to the space station on a Soyuz uh, a little while back. Um, that Soyuz uh, sprung a leak in its coolant system. Um, details are still, still being figured out. Uh, right, the coolant system is on an external loop. It's a it's on the outside of the vehicle, which is where you want your coolant because you don't want to breathe it if it leaked on the inside. Um, but basically, that Soyuz is 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 probably not capable of keeping three people alive for the re-entry sequence uh just because it can't reject all the heat from from those those folks and and the avionics and whatever else is operating on board uh and so the the solution has been uh for um the russian space agency to to speed up um the readiness of the next soyuz um that was meant to take the next crew up um it uh, i believe it just docked with the space station just a day or two ago um, and uh, it, it is now the, the lifeboat um, for, for the folks that are, that are on board. And so the, the, fu- the fun part that we've been kind of following fun, I say, um, as a, well, uh, as an engineer is, is looking at the different scenarios of like, how do you get people down from a space station if something goes wrong? So right now, uh, up, in, up until the Soyuz, uh, the replacement Soyuz was docked, uh, the, there was a, a SpaceX Dragon capsule uh, and then um, the Soyuz with the leak in it. And the Dragon is set up to fit four people. The Soyuz had had three or seven people on board the space station. And so if something goes horribly wrong, um, a giant leak or a fire or something that makes it uninhabitable, a you hull, need to be... A, a, big, a big hull breach. Yeah, yeah. 
you need to be able to get everybody back down to Earth. And so the the space agencies were looking at ways to like how do we how do we actually stuff more people into uh, the Dragon capsule, which only has four seats. Uh, and, and I haven't been able to get all the details from, from from some of the people who are working on this, but you know, it was things like, well, what if we strap a cargo net across a part of the, the the capsule, and like the one additional astronaut hangs on over there, and like he he wouldn't have a spacesuit because the mm-hmm. Russian spacesuit is designed to interface with the Russian capsule, and the SpaceX spacesuit is designed to interface with the SpaceX capsule, and um, super interesting right. stuff. Right, but if you could, but if the situation were so dire that you could ignore hundreds of NASA safety protocols and just say, like, okay, what has a what has a fifty percent chance of getting everybody down to the surface alive? What's the least bad answer here? Yeah, right. Um, But it's often what you have to end up with, and when you're looking at contingency plans. But what they don't do is have a lifeboat that's for one person. Right. They would never do that at the International Space Station. Why would you do that? Right. Why would you not make it at least two or three people? Right. Soyuz is tiny and they can jam three people into one. Right. Soyuz is the size of the capsules that the, the size of the capsule that uh, Gyllenhaal was in. And, it, and actually, it's smaller than that. Right. That capsule probably could lifeboat six people. It was huge. Right. It was. It was. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was Soyuz sized. Or yeah. bigger. It was definitely Soyuz sized. And and in the reason why I mean a number of good reasons why you wouldn't do that, um, one of them is just, just mass efficiency. Right? Once you've once you've built once you've built a pressure vessel, once you have a set of thrusters and, and parachutes and all that stuff, it's a, it's easier to make it just a little bit bigger for two people yeah. or three people than to just than to build a whole other one of those and, and now yeah. you've got all this additional mass that you have to bring up to orbit and such. Volume increases to the cube of radius, but surface area only increases to the square. And the mass of the of the escape vehicle is proportional to the surface area, and the number of people that you can save is proportional to the volume. So you know you get a you get a volume discount, people. You would you would never do single person. Uh, I think I think the one the one thing that would have been cool to see uh, again if you know, if I. If they had asked me, uh, is you know, if someone said, "Hey, what what kind of a single person lifeboat would you put on board a space station like the ISS?" Uh, there was a a project by General Electric back in the '60s called Moose, uh, which Ooh. stands for Man Out of Space Easiest, which was basically a single person ejection capsule thing uh, where you would you would climb into a spacesuit, you crawl into this. Uh, pre-shaped plastic bag, and mm-hmm. then fill it with two-part foam uh, that would that would sort of build okay. the capsule around you, mm-hmm. uh, and it has a rocket pack attached to it. And then uh, you just push away from the space station with this, fire the fire the rocket pack, and then the the shape of the bag is a is a is an aero shell to allow you to to aero break. Uh, and then um, and then you pop out a, a parachute which is attached to your suit. Uh, it sounds it sounds terrifying. Um, it sounds mm-hmm. definitely very much like a some of the Rube Goldberg kind of space uh, solutions that were put together in the '60s, and and it never never really came to much of anything. But uh, it was uh, it was a pretty cool pretty cool project to look up. So they could have there could have been clever ways if you needed to do a single person, but they, they didn't need to do any of that. They could have had two standard Soyuzes attached. All they would have had to say is, "I'm going to lure." 
the monster into my capsule and head off into deep space. And you can get safely to earth because I've lured the monster away. Yeah. Right. They didn't have to, they didn't have to do the one man capsule nonsense. And they still could have had the dramatic thing that they wanted to do at the end that they did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, <laughs> which is, um, right. So you, you get, you get this, uh, it's, it's the twist. It's the twist at the end of the movie, which if you're paying any sort of attention, you can see, see coming, but, but it's still, it's still fun. Right. So, um, so you've got, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal uh, with the monster in one capsule, and you have um, Lady uh, Jessica in the uh, other. Lady Jessica, Rebecca Ferguson in the other, um, without Calvin, and and it looks like one of them is is heading off into deep space, and the other one is is coming back to Earth, uh, and uh, as we see splashdown, it turns out that it was in fact uh, Calvin's pod with. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and it's uh, that made its way back to Earth. Yes, so yeah, her really, her capsule yeah. hits some debris again in a way that would allow her to skip off into deep space or whatever, not just put a giant hole in her capsule. And uh, so she's now lost in space, screaming. And Jake Gyllenhaal is trying to wrest control of the thruster. But like here again, like why would Calvin know that he was attempting to sacrifice himself? <laughs> like why would Calvin not be like, oh cool, I've I've hitched a ride with this guy down to Earth? But you know, like the alien, right? The alien just hung out in a locker in the space in the escape capsule with Sigourney Weaver in Alien, right? It didn't yeah. come out until uh, after the spaceship blew itself to bits, right? Yeah. Until after the Nostromo blew itself to bits. Why would Calvin not do that? Like, like, cool, I got away with this guy. All is good. No, right. no, no. This guy is trying to kill himself. So I'm going to input the opposite of whatever he does to the controls. I'm going to force him to do the opposite of what he wants to do. Like, none of that is very unfortunate. It's the omnipotent, omniscient uh, alien, right? Right. It's the yeah. alien who's yeah. super smart. Yes, who understands where where it is and where it's going and, and how to get there. And even human nature, like you could see, I mean, he could see that the capsule was headed towards Earth, right? But what he doesn't know, well, maybe not. I don't know. I guess it showed on the screen. He could have read the screen and tried to see, because the screen kind of showed a trajectory as he was moving the controller, right? The screen went from a uh, escape trajectory towards uh, impacting. So maybe, maybe. I don't know. I don't know, Tim. I don't know. But it was the gotcha was, nope, you think Rebecca Ferguson is safe and 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 uh, uh, Gyllenhaal's made this great thing. Nope, it's the opposite. No. Um, No. And then I do love love the final scene. I think it's a great final scene with the the fishermen. With the fishermen and and uh, and the final the final song playing over the end is is Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky, um, perhaps not terribly used here, but but also maybe better better used in in uh, the Apollo thirteen uh, soundtrack. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> but but the idea that the fishermen are coming up to the capsule that's floating as it's designed to do. And they go look inside the window and Jake Gyllenhaal is basically encased in alien goo. Right. And, uh, and he's screaming 
like I would think the fishermen would would back off at that point. If I was a if I was a fisherman and I saw a space capsule and there's a guy inside screaming, uh, I would be like, I don't know if I should mess with this. But they open the hatch and that's yep. it. Yep. Wanna, they want to help them out. Yep. Everybody's going to die. Everybody on Earth is going to die. Every yes. single person's going to die. Yep. And and film. And film. All right. So. We're at the point of the of the podcast where we talk about science and fiction and film. Uh, what do you, what do you think of the science, Tim? Ooh, okay. Um, <laughs> um, I think as as we as we discussed with with Jeff, you know, it's not it's not terrible. It's not great. Um, so I'm gonna kind of go go down the middle here. I'll I'll give it I'll give it a I'll give it a sixty. Five percent on the science. I gave I gave it a seventy, so I, I was I was pretty much right there with you. Yeah, you know it, it, it. You know, compared to a lot of science fiction films, they made a real effort to try to present the International Space Station. They made a real effort to try to present astronauts at the International Space Station. I mean, our friend Jeff, you know, said there was a lot of stuff in it that, that worked pretty well, right? Um, so I thought as far as things like that go, like, I don't think the science was honestly any worse than gravity. I mean, everybody loves gravity and I thought gravity was okay, but I, but I thought that this, this, this movie science isn't any worse than gravity's honestly. Uh, how about as fiction? As fiction, um, characters and plot and crescendo and denouement and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, it was fun. I think, as we talked about, there were a lot of fun little beats. There were some 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 tension. Um, the, the writers were clearly having having fun with with the with the theme here. Um, but I didn't care about any of the characters like at all. Hundred percent, hundred percent agree with you. <laughs> even you know, even Jake Gyllenhaal with his with his uh, with his his big emoting eyes like and and his desire to not go back to humanity or whatever like just didn't i don't know no nobody nobody really grabbed me um even the uh you know murakami watching his his kid being born over video link like i I don't know it just didn't didn't work um so uh what would that's uh i'd say 75 75 oh you gave it as high as a 75 so you gave it it worked better as fiction for you than it did as science yeah, okay. it was it was fun, you know. Okay, so I I, I just I scored it lower. Um, I, I really didn't like any of these characters. They, they everything was super muted in this movie. Everybody everybody's reactions to everything was super muted. The only person who was having any fun was Ryan Reynolds, and he gets killed real fast. Um, I mean, I didn't like uh, Lady Jessica. Uh, uh, none of them did anything for me as characters. So I had a really hard time. I thought that the horror stuff worked fairly well. You know, they did a lot of winking and nods and check off guns and, and that kind of stuff. But I only gave it a 50% as, okay. as fiction. Um, I thought it worked far better. I thought it was a far prettier and scientifically accurate film than it was a good film. Hmm. Uh, I really, I, I, I mean, I have to compare it to. I mean, it, it is Alien at the ISS, right? I have to compare it to the cast of the uh, the, the uh, crew of the Nostromo, right? Yeah. And you've got Harry Dean Stanton, yeah. and you've got Yafet Kodo. I mean, just take those two guys, right? The two least, maybe, well, no, the least character was the uh, Cartwright, whatever her name is, uh, Angela Cartwright, I want to say. 
Um, but you know, you're non, you know, you had your, the three major characters, but then the three lesser characters were every bit as interesting and, uh, you know, or aliens, right. Where the yeah. remaining people and yeah. aliens were all super interesting. None of these characters, I don't know anything about any of these people except for a little bit about Jake Gillen, Hall's character and a little bit about Dr. Terry's character. And that's it. So yeah, I'm, I'm at 50%. Sorry. Uh, as a film, as a film, um, let's see. Um, I can't, I can't help but kind of compare it to other ISS based or similar kind of, kind of movies. Um, you know, gravity, um, is the obvious one. Um, but you know, even, even other films like, um, maybe Ad Astra or, or Interstellar, um, I don't know. I think it it, it, um, it wasn't super impressive as a film to me. Um, and I think one of the things that I didn't talk about a lot is, is that we don't we don't get a lot of exterior shots. Mm-hmm. Um, every, everything happens everything happens inside the space station. Just about the um, second spacewalk. There's a bunch of exterior shots in the second spacewalk. Yeah, I think that's kind of that's kind of about about it. And 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 yet the ISS wasn't presented in any sort of claustrophobic way. Uh, I felt mm-hmm. like it, it felt very open and plenty of room to move around and stuff. And so like, it felt huge. It was, it felt, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. sure it feels much felt much bigger in a film than it would actually feel like if you were on it. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, not making as good of a use of the setting to, for filmmaking as, as they could have, I think kind of bugged me. Um, and so with, with that, uh, I'm going to go 70% for, for film. That's, ex- that's exactly what I gave it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it had, it had things that were pretty. Um, it, it, was a, it, was, it was a well-made film from a technical standpoint, right? Um, you know, they spent a bunch of money on it. Uh, there's information in Wikipedia about, you know, the the stuff that they did to try to get veracity of, of what they were filming. And, and, you know, they clearly aimed to make a good movie and it has the, it has the, the mechanics of a decent film. It, it is interesting. They didn't do more outside stuff. They didn't do more, you know, it, it, they could have placed people in the ISS better, right? They could have had landmarks inside the ISS. Really the only landmarks inside the ISS were the airlock and the uh, computer station where uh, where they did the holograms and all that kind of stuff. But uh, otherwise, every tube and, and hallway was pretty much like every other tube and hallway, right? Which was maybe supposed to be more like Alien. I think they wanted to make it feel very large, right? Because I think that that would connect it more to an Alien type. This thing could be hiding anywhere. Not like it's like one main long hallway and a couple of branch things branching off, which is what the actual ISS is. So, uh, all right. Well, we had the same score on that. So that gives us a grand total of 68 on science, 63 on fiction and 70 on film. So I think you would have, you would have rated the fiction part higher than the other two. And the combined score was lower because I hated the fiction side of it so much because I just, the characters did nothing for me at all. Yeah. So you have a list. I do have a list. I do have a list. I've been scanning through the list um, as to what 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 do I what would be good as a uh, a follow up to our past couple of movies here. Um, 
and I'm gonna I'm gonna take us a little bit away from space. Um, okay. and I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that we do Snowpiercer as our next. Oh movie. yeah! Awesome! I would love to do that. A film I have seen. Um, I think there's a lot we could talk about on Snowpiercer. Oh my gosh! People should be ready for some politics. I think. I think Uh-oh. it's possible. We know it's possible. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure you could review Snowpiercer without having a little bit of a conversation about politics. But you know me, I, I'm Mister uh, trying to find common ground. So I'm sure I'll try to find universal truths to it. But wow. it's it's, okay. it's a political film, right? I it's mean, uh it's a political film. That's great. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I I have been actually reading a lot about uh, collective collectivism and um, <laughs> capitalism and that sort of thing. So uh, we'll have plenty to talk about. Can I? Uh, do I have permission to uh, monologue a bit on why Chris Evans is the best thing in the MCU? <laughs> when we, when we this movie. Uh, why not? Why not? Okay, great. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, thanks everybody for uh, being with us for another episode of the Monty Hall Effect. We really want to thank Jeff Ashby for joining us. Uh, I hadn't seen Jeff in a while. Tim had seen him more recently than I had. And it was just great to connect with him again. He's just everything you would hope for in an astronaut, just a, a great person, enthusiastic about the world. You know, we wound up spending a little bit more time talking to him off camera about, you know, he he really enjoyed the Russian cosmonauts that he got to work with on the ISS. And, and uh, you know, he is just a, just a, like I said, everything you would hope for in an astronaut. So really lucky that he's a friend and that he wanted to come on the show and really appreciate it. Uh, any any closing thoughts, Tim? Uh, you know, just make sure you're, you're following your proper biological contamination protocols uh, the next time you go to space. Just make sure you stay safe out there, folks. All right. We'll do. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Monty Hall Effect. Our musical themes were written and performed by Guy Ellis. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions about the podcast, you can contact us at themontyhalleffect at gmail.com. Thanks, and keep watching science fiction films.